Hello, my darling, and welcome to our story time. Today we are reading Medusa's Coil by H.P. Lovecraft. If you like what you hear, please make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. And now, on with the story time. Toward the middle of June, of 1916, Dennis got a note from his old friend, Frank Marsh, telling of a nervous breakdown which made him want to take a rest in the country. It was postmarked New Orleans, for Marsh had gone home from Paris when he felt the collapse coming on, and seemed a very plain, though polite bid, for an invitation from us. Marsh, of course, knew that Marceline was here, and asked very courteously after her. Dennis was sorry to hear of his trouble, and told him at once to come along for an indefinite visit. Marsh came, and I was shocked to notice how he had changed since I had seen him in his earlier days. He was smallish, lightish fellow, with blue eyes and an undecided chin. And now I could see the effects of his drink, and I don't know what else in his puffy eyelids, enlarged nose pores, and heavy lines around the mouth. I reckon he had taken his pose of decadence pretty seriously, and set out to be as much of a rimbaud, bonlier, or la tremole as he could. And yet he was delightful to talk to, for like all decadents, he was exquisitely sensitive to the color and atmosphere and names of things, admirably, thoroughly alive, and with whole records of conscious experiments in obscure, shadowy fields of living and feeling, which most of us pass over without knowing that they exist. The poor young devil. If only his father had lived longer and taken him in hand. There was great stuff in the boy. I was glad of the visit, for I felt it would help to set up a normal atmosphere in the house again. And that's what it really seemed to do at first, for as I said, Marsh was a delight to have around. He was as sincere and profound an artist as ever I saw in my life, and I certainly believe that nothing on earth mattered to him except the perception and expression of beauty. When he saw an exquisite thing, or was creating one, his eyes would dilate until the light irises went nearly out of sight, leaving two mystical black pits in that week delicate, chalk-like face, black pits opening on strange worlds, which none of us could guess about. When he reached here, though, he didn't have many chances to show this tendency, for he had, as he had told Dennis, gone quite stale. It seems he had been very successful as an artist of a bizarre kind, 
Fuseli or Goya or Simi or Clark Ashton Smith, but had suddenly become played out. The world of ordinary things around him had ceased to hold anything he could recognize as beauty. Beauty, that is, of enough force and poignancy to arouse his creative faculty. He had often been this way before. All decadents are. But this time he could not invent any new, strange, or ultra sensation or experience which would supply the needed illusion of fresh beauty or stimulatingly adventurous expectancy. He was like a neutral or desessentious at the most jaded point of his curious orbit. Marceline was away when Marsh arrived. She hadn't been enthusiastic about his coming and had refused to decline an invitation from some of our friends in St. Louis, which came about that time for her and Dennis. Dennis, of course, stayed to receive his guest, but Marceline had gone on alone. It was the first time they had ever been separated, and I hoped the interval would help to dispel the sort of daze that was making such a fool of the boy. Marceline showed no hurry to get back, but seemed to me to prolong her absence as much as she could. Dennis took it better than one would have expected from such a doting husband, and seemed more like his old self as he talked over the days with Marsh and tried to cheer his listless aesthetic up. It was Marsh who seemed most impatient to see the woman, perhaps because he thought her strange beauty or some phase of the mysticism which had gone into our one-time magical cult, might help to reawaken his interest in things and give him another star toward artistic creation. That there was no baser reason, I was absolutely certain from what I knew of Marsh's character. With all his weaknesses, he was a gentleman, and it had indeed relieved me when I first learned that he wanted to come here, because his willingness to accept Dennis's hospitality proved that there was no reason why he shouldn't. When at last, Marceline did return, I could see that Marsh was tremendously affected. He did not attempt to make her talk of the bizarre thing, which she had so definitely abandoned, but was unable to hide a powerful admiration which kept his eyes now dilated in that curious way for the first time during his visit, riveted to her every moment as she was in the room. She, however, seemed uneasy rather than pleased by his steady scrutiny. That is, she seemed so at first, though this feeling of hers wore away in a few days and left the two on a basis of the most cordial and voluble congeniality. I can see Marsh studying her constantly when he thought no one was watching, and I wondered how long it would be that the only artist, and not the primitive man, would be aroused by her mysterious graces. Dennis naturally felt some irritation at this turn of affairs, though he realized that his guest was a man of honor, and that, as kindred mystics and aesthetics, 
Marshalline and Marsh would naturally have things and interests to discuss, in which a more or less conventional person could have no part. He didn't hold anything against anyone, but merely regretted that his own imagination was too limited and traditional to let him talk with Marshalline as Marsh talked. At this stage of things, I began to see more of the boy. With his wife otherwise busy, he had time to remember that he had a father, and a father who was ready to help him in any sort of perplexity or difficulty. We often sat together on the veranda watching Marsh and Marshalline as they rode up or down the drive on horseback or played tennis on the court that used to stretch south of the house. They talked mostly in French, which Marsh, though he hadn't more than a quarter portion of French blood, handled more glibly than either Dennis or I could speak it. Marceline's English, always academically correct, was rapidly improving in accent, but it was plain that she relished dropping back into her mother tongue. As we looked at the congenial couple they made, I could see the boy's cheek and throat muscles tighten. Though he wasn't a whit less ideal host to Marsh, or a whit less considerate husband to Marceline. All this was generally in the afternoon, for Marceline rose very late, had breakfast in bed, and took an immense amount of time preparing to come downstairs. I never knew of anyone so wrapped up in cosmetics, beauty exercises, hair oils, and everything of that kind. It was in these morning hours that Dennis and Marsh did their real visiting, and exchanged the close confidences which kept their friendship up, despite the strain that jealousy imposed. While well, I was in one of those morning talks on the veranda, that Marsh made the proposition which brought on the end. I was laid up with some of my neuritis, but had managed to get downstairs and stretch out on the front parlor sofa near the long window. Dennis and Marsh were just outside, so I couldn't help hearing all that they said. They had been talking about art and the curious, capricious, environmental elements needed to jolt an artist into producing the real article. Marsh suddenly swerved from abstractions to the personal application he must have had in mind from the start. I suppose, he was saying, that nobody can tell just what it is in some scenes or objects that makes them aesthetic stimuli for certain individuals. Basically, of course, it must have some reference to each man's background or stored-up mental associations, for no two people have the same scale of sensitiveness and responses. We decadents are artists, for whom all ordinary things have ceased to have any emotional or imaginative significance. But no one of us responds in the same way, to exactly the same extraordinary thing. Now take me, for instance, he paused and resumed. I know, Denny, that I can say these things to you because you have such a preternaturally unspoiled mind, clean, fine, direct, objective, and all of that. You won't misunderstand, 
as an over-subtilized, effete man of the world might. He paused once more. The fact is, I think I know what's needed to set my imagination working again. I've had a dim idea of it ever since we were in Paris, but I'm sure of it now. It's Marceline, old chap, that face and her hair, and the train of shadowy images they bring up. Not merely visible beauty, though God knows there's enough of that, but something peculiar and individualized that can't be exactly explained. Do you know, in the last few days, I've felt the existence of such a stimulus so keenly that I honestly think I could outdo myself, break into the real masterpiece class if I could get hold of paint and canvas at just the time when her face and hair set my fancy stirring and weaving. There's something weird and otherworldly about it, something joined up with the dim, ancient thing Marceline represents. I don't know how much she's told you about that side of her, but I can assure you there's plenty of it. She has some marvelous links with the outside. Some change in Dennis's expression must have halted the speaker here, for there was a considerable spell of silence before the words went on. I was utterly taken aback, for I'd expected no such overt development of this and I wondered what my son could be thinking. My heart began to pound violently, and I strained my ears in the frankest of intentional eavesdropping. Then Marsh resumed. Of course you're jealous. I know how a speech like mine must sound, but I can swear to you that you needn't be. Dennis did not answer, and Marsh went on. To tell the truth, I could never be in love with Marceline. I couldn't even be a cordial friend of hers in the warmest sense. Why, damn it all. I feel like a hypocrite talking with her these days as I've been doing. The case simply is. That one phase of her half hypnotizes me in a certain way. A very strange, fantastic, and dimly terrible way just as another phase half-hypnotizes you in a much more normal way. I see something in her, or to be psychologically exact, something through her or beyond her that you don't see at all, something that brings up a vast pageantry of shapes from forgotten abysses and makes me want to paint incredible things whose outlines vanish the instant I try to envision them. Don't mistake, Denny. Your wife is a magnificent being, a splendid focus of cosmic forces, who has a right to be called divine, if anything on earth has. I felt a clearing of the situation at this point, for the abstract strangeness of Marsh's express statement, plus the flattery, he was now heaping on Marceline, could not fail to disarm and mollify one as fondly proud of his consort as Dennis always was. Marsh evidently caught the change himself, for there was more confidence in his tone as he continued. I must paint her, Denny. I must paint that hair, 
and you won't regret it. There's something more than mortal about her hair. Something more than beautiful. He paused, and I wondered what Dennis could be thinking. I wondered indeed what I was really thinking myself. Was Marcia's interest actually that of the artist alone? Or was he merely infatuated as Dennis had been? I had thought, in their school days, that he had envied my boy, and I dimly felt it might be the same now. On the other hand, something in that talk of artistic stimulus had rung amazingly true, so that the more I pondered, the more I was inclined to take the stuff at face value. Dennis seemed to do so too, for although I could not catch his low-spoken reply, I could tell by the effect it produced that it must have been in the affirmative. There was a sound of someone slapping another on the back, and then a grateful speech from Marsh that was too long to remember. That's great, Denny, and just as I told you, you'll never regret it. In a sense, I'm half doing it for you. You'll be a different man when you see it. I'll put you back where you used to be, giving you a waking up and a sort of salvation. But you can't see what I mean as yet. Just remember, old friend, and don't get the idea that I'm not the same old bird. I rose perplexedly as I saw the two stroll off across the lawn, arm in arm, and smoking in unison. What could Marsh have meant by his strange and almost ominous reassurance? The more my fears were quieted in one direction, the more they were aroused in another. Look at it in any way I could. It seemed to be a rather bad business. But matters got started just the same. Dennis fixed up an attic room with skylights, and Marsh sent for all sorts of painting equipment. Everyone was rather excited about the new venture, and I was at least glad that something was on foot to break the brooding tension. Soon, the sittings began, and we all took them quite seriously, for we could see that Marsh regarded them as important artistic events. Denny and I used to go quietly about the house, as though something sacred were occurring, and we knew that it was sacred so far as Marsh was concerned. With Marshalline, though, it was a different matter, as I began to see at once. Whatever Marsh's reactions to the sittings may have been, hers were painfully obvious. Every possible way she betrayed a frank and commonplace infatuation for the artist, and would repulse Dennis's marks of affection whenever she dared. Oddly, I noticed this more vividly than Dennis himself, and tried to devise some plan for keeping the boy's mind easy until the matter could be straightened out. There was no use in having him excited about it, if it could be helped. In the end, I decided that Dennis had better be away while the disagreeable situation existed. I could represent his interests well enough at this end, and sooner or later Marsh would finish the picture and go. My view of Marsh's honor was such that I did not look for any worse developments. 
when the matter had blown over, and Marceline had forgotten about her new infatuation, it would be time enough to have Dennis on hand again. So I wrote a long letter to my marketing and financial agent in New York, and cooked up a plan to have the boy summoned there for an indefinite time. I had the agent write him that our affairs absolutely required one of us to go east, and of course my illness made it clear that I could not be the one. It was arranged that when Dennis got to New York, he would find enough plausible manners to keep him busy, as long as I thought he ought to be away. The plan worked perfectly, and Dennis started for New York without the least suspicion, Marceline and Marsh going with him in the car to Cape Girardeau, where he caught the afternoon train to St. Louis. They returned about dark, and as McCobb drove the car back to the stables, I could hear them talking on the veranda, in those same chairs near the long parlor window, where Marsh and Dennis had sat when I overheard them talking about the portrait. This time... I resolved to do some intentional eavesdropping, so I quietly went down to the front parlor and stretched out on the sofa near the window. At first I could not hear anything, but very shortly there came a sound as if of a chair being shifted, followed by a short, sharp breath and a sort of inarticulately heard exclamation from Marceline. Then I heard Marsh speaking in a strange, almost formal voice. I'd enjoy working tonight if you're not too tired. Marceline's reply was in the same hurt tone which had marked her exclamation. She used English as he had done. Oh, Frank, is that really all you care about? Forever working. Can't we just sit out in this glorious moonlight? He answered impatiently his voice showing a certain contempt beneath the dominant quality of artistic enthusiasm. Moonlight. Good God, what cheap sentimentality. For a supposedly sophisticated person, you surely do hang on to some of the crudest claptrap that ever escaped from the dime novels. With art at your elbow, you have to think of the moon, cheap as a spotlight at the varieties. Or perhaps it makes you think of the rude must dance around the stone pillars at Atreo. Hell, how you used to make those Google-eyed boys stare. But no, I suppose you've dropped all of that now. No more Atlantean magic or hair-snake rites from Madame de Russy. I'm the only one to remember the old things. The things that came down through the temples of Tanit and echoed on the ramparts of Zimbabwe but I won't be cheated of that remembrance, all that is weaving itself into the thing on my canvas, the thing that is going to capture wonder and crystallize the secrets of seventy-five thousand years. Marceline interrupted in a voice full of mixed emotions. It's you who are cheaply sentimental now. You know well that the old things had better be let alone. All of you had better look out if I ever chant the old rites or try to call up what lies hidden in Yuga, Zimbabwe, and Ralea. 
I thought you had more sense. You lack logic. You want me to be interested in this precious painting of yours. Yet you never let me see what you're doing. Always that black cloth over it. It's of me. I shouldn't think it would matter if I saw it. Marsh was interrupting this time. His voice curiously hard and strained. No, not now. You'll see it in due course of time. You say it's of you, yes, it's that, but it's more. If you knew, you mightn't be so impatient. Poor Dennis, my God, it's a shame. My throat went suddenly dry as the words rose, to an almost febrile pitch. What could Marsh mean? Suddenly I saw that he had stopped and was entering the house alone. I heard the front door slam and listened as his footsteps ascended the stairs. Outside on the veranda, I could still hear Marceline's heavy, angry breathing. I crept away, sick at heart, feeling that there were grave things to ferret out before I could safely let Dennis come back. After that evening, the tension around the place was even worse than before. Marceline had always lived on flattery and fawning, the shock of those few blunt words from Marsh were too much for her temperament. There was no living in the house with her anymore, for with poor Dennis gone, she took out her abusiveness on everybody. When she could find no one indoors to quarrel with, she would go out to the cabin and spend hours talking with the strange old Zulu woman. Aunt Sophie was the only person who had fawn objectly enough to suit her and when I tried once to overhear their conversation, I found Marceline whispering about elder secrets and unknown kadath. While the woman rocked to and fro in her chair, making inarticulate sounds of reverence and admiration every now and then. But nothing could break her dog-like infatuation for Marsh. She would talk bitterly and sullenly to him, yet was getting more and more obedient to his wishes. It was very convenient for him, since he now became able to make her pose for the picture whenever he felt like painting. He tried to show gratitude for his willingness, but I thought I could detect a kind of contempt or even loathing beneath his careful politeness. For my part, I frankly hated Marceline, there was no use in calling my attitude anything as mild as mere dislike these days. Certainly I was glad Dennis was away. His letters, not nearly so frequent as I wished, showed signs of strain and worry. As the middle of August went by, I gathered from Marsh's remarks that the portrait was nearly done. His mood seemed increasingly sardonic though Marceline's temper improved a bit as the prospect of seeing the thing tickled her vanity. I can still recall the day when Marsh said he'd have everything finished within a week. Marceline brightened up perceptibly, though not without a venomous look at me. It seemed as if her coiled hair visibly tightened about her head. I'm to be the first one to see it, she snapped. Then, smiling at Marsh, she said, 
and if I don't like it, I shall slash it to pieces. Marsh's face took on the most curious look. He answered her, I cannot vouch for your taste, Marceline, but I swear it will be magnificent. Not that I want to take much credit, art creates itself, and this thing had to be done, so just wait. During the next few days I felt a strange sense of foreboding, as if the completion of the picture meant a kind of catastrophe instead of relief. Dennis, too, had not written me, and my agent in New York said he was planning some trip to the country. I wondered what the outcome of the whole thing would be. What a strange mixture of elements. Marsh and Marceline, Dennis and I. How would we react? When my fears grew too great, I tried to lay them all to my infirmity but that explanation never quite satisfied me. Well, the thing exploded on Tuesday, the 26th of August. I had risen at my usual time and had breakfast, but was not good for much because of the pain in my spine. It had been troubling me badly of late and forcing me to take opiates when it got too unbearable. Nobody else was downstairs except the servants though I could hear Marshalline moving about in her room. Marsh slept inside the attic next to his studio, and had begun to keep such late hours that he was seldom up until noon. About ten o'clock the pain got the better of me, so that I took a double dose of my opiate and lay down on the parlor sofa. The last I heard was Marshalline's pacing overhead. Poor creature, if I had known. She must have been walking before the long mirror, admiring herself. That was like her, vain from start to finish, reveling in her own beauty, just as she reveled in all the little luxuries Dennis was able to give her. I didn't waken again until near sunset, and knew instantly how long I had slept, from the golden light and the long shadows outside the long window. Nobody was about, and a sort of unnatural stillness seemed to be hovering over everything. From afar, though, I thought I could sense a faint howling, wild and intermittent, whose quality had a slight but baffling familiarity about it. I'm not much for psychic premonitions, but I was frightfully uneasy about it. There had been dreams even worse than the ones I had been dreaming in the weeks before, and this time they seemed hideously linked to some black and festering reality. The whole place had a poisonous air. Afterward, I reflected that certain sounds must have filtered through to my unconscious brain during those hours of drugged sleep. My pain, though, was very much eased and I rose and walked without difficulty. Soon enough, I began to see that something was wrong. Marsh and Marceline might have been writing, but someone ought to have been getting dinner in the kitchen. Instead, there was only silence, except for the faint distant howl or wail, and nobody answered when I pulled the old-fashioned bell 
to summon Sipio. Then, chancing to look up, I saw the spreading stain on the ceiling, the bright red stain that must have come through the floor of Marceline's room. In an instant, I forgot my crippled back and hurried upstairs to find out the worst. Everything under the sun raced through my mind as I struggled with the dampness of the warped door of that silent chamber, and most hideous of all was a terrible sense of malign fulfillment and fatal expectedness. I had, it struck me, known all along that nameless horrors were gathering, that something profoundly and cosmically evil had gained a foothold under my roof, and only blood and tragedy could result. The door gave in at last, and I stumbled into the large room beyond, all dim from the branches of the great trees outside the windows. For a moment I could do nothing but flinch at the faint evil odor that immediately struck my nostrils. Then, turning on the electric light and glancing around, I glimpsed a nameless blasphemy on the yellow and blue rug. It lay face down in a great pool of dark, thickened blood, and had the gory print of a shod human foot in the middle of its naked back. Blood was splattered everywhere, on the walls, furniture, and floor. My knees gave way as I took in the sight, so that I had to stumble into a chair and slump down. The thing had obviously been a human being, though its identity was not easy to establish at first, since it was without clothes, and had most of its hair hacked and torn from the scalp in a very crude way. It was of a deep ivory color, and I knew that it must have been Marceline. The shoe print on the back made the thing seem all the more hellish. I could not even picture the strange, loathsome tragedy which must have taken place while I slept in the room below. When I raised my hand to wipe my dripping forehead, I saw that my fingers were sticky with blood. I shuddered, then realized that it must have come from the knob of the door, which the unknown murderer had forced shut behind him as he left. He had taken his weapon with him, it seemed, for no instrument of death was visible here. As I studied the floor, I saw that a line of sticky footprints like the one on the body led away from the horror to the door. There was another blood trail, too, and of a less easily explainable kind, a broadish, continuous line, as if marking the path of some huge snake. At first I concluded it must be due to something the murderer had dragged after him. Then, noting the way some of the footprints seemed to be superimposed upon it, I was forced to believe that it had been there when the murderer left. But what crawling entity could have been in that room with the victim and our assassin, leaving before the killer when the deed was done? As I asked myself this question, I thought I heard a fresh burst of that faint, distant wailing. Finally, Rousing myself from the lethargy of horror, 
I got on my feet again and began following the footprints. Who the murderer was, I could not even faintly guess, nor could I try to explain the absence of the servants. I vaguely felt that I ought to go up to Marsha's attic quarters. But before I had fully formulated the idea, I saw that the bloody trail was indeed taking me there. Was he himself the murderer? Had he gone mad under the strain of the morbid situation and suddenly run amok? In the attic corridor, the trail became faint, the prints almost ceasing as they merged with the dark carpet. I could still, however, discern the strange single path of the entity who had gone first, and this led straight to the closed door of Marsha's studio, disappearing beneath it at a point about halfway from side to side. Evidently, it had crossed the threshold at a time when the door was wide open. Sick at heart, I tried the knob and found the door unlocked. Opening it, I paused in the waning north light to see what fresh nightmare might be awaiting me. There was certainly something human on the floor, and I reached for the switch to turn on the chandelier. But as the light flashed up to my gaze, and my eyes left the floor and the horror there. It was Marsh, poor devil. And I fixed myself frantically and incredulously upon the living thing that cowered and stared in the open doorway leading to Marsh's bedroom. It was a tasseled, wild-eyed thing, crusted with dried blood and carrying in its hand a wicked machete which had been one of the ornaments of the studio wall. Yet even in that awful moment, I recognized it as one whom I had thought more than a thousand miles away. It was my own boy, Dennis, or the maddened wreck which had once been Dennis. The sight of me seemed to bring back a trifle of sanity, or at least of memory in the poor boy. He straightened up and began to toss his head about, as if trying to shake free from some enveloping influence. I could not speak a word, but moved my lips in an effort to get back my voice. My eyes wandered for a moment to the figure on the floor in front of the heavily draped easel, the figure towards which the strange blood trail led, and which seemed to be tangled in the coils of some dark, ropey object. The shifting of my glance apparently produced some impression in the twisted brain of the boy, for suddenly he began to mutter in a hoarse whisper, whose purport I was soon able to catch. I had to exterminate her. She was the devil, the summit and high priestess of all evil, the spawn of the pit. Marsh knew and tried to warn me, Good old Frank, I didn't kill him, though I was ready to before I realized. But when I went down there and killed her, then the cursed hair. I listened in horror as Dennis choked, paused, and began again. You didn't know. Her letters got strange, and I knew she was in love with Marsh. Then she nearly stopped writing 
He never mentioned her. I felt something was wrong, and thought I ought to come back and find out. Couldn't tell you. Your manner would have given it away. Wanted to surprise them. Got here about noon today. Came in a cab, and sent the house servants all off. Left the field hands alone, for their cabins are all out of earshot. Told McCab to give me some things in Cape Girardeau, and not bothered to come back until tomorrow. Had all the slaves take the old car, but let Mary drive them to Ben Village for a vacation. I told them we were all going on some sort of outing and wouldn't need help. I said they'd better stay all night with Uncle Sip's cousin, who keeps that slave boarding house. Dennis was getting incoherent now, and I strained my ears to grasp every word. Again I thought I heard that wild, far-off wail. But the story in first place, for the present. I saw you sleeping in the parlor, and took a chance you wouldn't wake up, and went upstairs on the quiet to hunt up Marsh and that evil woman. The boy shuddered, and he avoided pronouncing Marshalline's name. At the same time, I saw his eyes dilate in unison with the bursting of the distant crying, whose vague familiarity had now become very great. She was not in her room, so I went up to the studio. The door was shut, and I could hear voices inside. Didn't knock just burst in and found her, posing for the picture. Nude, but with that hellish hair all draped around her, and making all sorts of sheep's eyes and marsh. He had the easel turned half away from the door, so I couldn't see the picture. Both of them were pretty well jolted when I showed up, and Marsh dropped his brush. I was in a rage, and I told him he'd have to show me the portrait. But he got calmer every minute. He told me it wasn't quite done, but it would be in a day or two. Said I could see it then, and that she hadn't seen it. But that didn't go on with me. I stepped up, and he dropped a velvet curtain over the thing before I could see it. He was ready to fight, before letting me see it. But that, that creature, she stepped up and sided with me, said we ought to see it. Frank got horribly worked up and gave me a punch when I tried to get at the curtain. I punched him back and seemed to have knocked him out. Then I was almost knocked out myself by the shriek that the creature gave. She had drawn aside the hangings herself and got a look at what Marsh had been painting. I wheeled around and saw her rushing like mad out of the room. And then I saw the painting. Madness flared up in the boy's eyes again as he got to this place. And I thought for a moment he was going to spring at me with his machete. But after a pause he partly steadied himself. Oh, God, that thing. Don't ever look at it. Burn it with the hangings around it, 
and throw the ashes into the river. Marsh knew, and was warning me. He knew what it was, what that woman, that leopardess, or Gorgon, or Medusa, or whatever she was, actually represented. He tried to hint to me ever since I met her in his Paris studio, but it couldn't be told in words. I thought they all wronged her when they whispered horrors about her. She had me hypnotized, so that I couldn't believe the plain facts. But this picture was caught the whole secret, the whole monstrous background. God, but Frank is an artist. That thing is the greatest piece of work any living soul has produced since Rembrandt. It's a crime to burn it. But it would be a greater crime to let it exist just as it would have been an abhorrent sin to let that she-demon exist any longer. The minute I saw it, I understood what it was, what she was, and what part she played in the frightful secret that has come down from the days of Cthulhu and the Elder Ones, and the secret that was nearly wiped out when Atlantis sank, but that kept half alive in hidden traditions, in allegorical myths and furtive, midnight cold practices. For you know she was the real thing. It wasn't any fake. It would have been merciful if it had been a fake. It was the old, hideous shadow that philosophers never dared mention. The thing hinted at in the Necronomicon and symbolized the Easter Island Colossi. And this, my darling, ends our story time for today. As always, I hope that you have very sweet and creepy dreams. Good night.